Hello, and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. It's been a while. We've had a, hi- a hiatus, I suppose you can say. Um, and we're actually recording this podcast a little earlier than usual. So it's, it, there could be some late breaking news in the 48 hours between when we um, record this and when it publishes. So, But we're actually going to go back in time by an order of <laughs> several weeks or maybe even a month because it's just been so long. And we've never actually talked about everybody's favorite movie topic of 2016, the Ghostbusters remake slash reboot. Liz and I have both seen this since we last spoke. Um, I saw it kind of late, actually. but I think I saw it the second week. Okay. Yeah, I think I saw it the third week or something. I don't know. But it's been a crazy month. But um, I wanted to talk about it just really quick. I mean, because... I saw it in such strange circumstances that I thought were kind of funny and kind of perfectly crystallized um, where I stand on the all the whatever outrage or like, I don't know, hyperbolic discussion around it. I'm just sitting here with a dumb grin on my face waiting to hear what these circumstances are. Yeah, I saw it on a very rainy afternoon in New York City and I saw it about 30 minutes. I, I got out of it basically got on a train, went to another multiplex in New York for a screening of Jason Bourne. Um, and I I walked out of Ghostbusters feeling like, okay, I liked that. Like, I mean, it wasn't, it was a little bit sloppy. It was a little rough around the edges. I felt like some, some of the joke writing and editing could have been like, like cleaned up a little bit. But on yeah, it the whole, could have been a little sharper. Yeah, on the whole, though, I, I enjoyed it. I found the performances to be fun. I, I like, enjoyed the dynamic. Even like I think there's been a lot of, like, critical, I don't know, people have not enjoyed or, or been uh, engaged by the relationship between Christian Wiig's character and Melissa McCarthy's character. But I I found I found it to be very relatable and, and, and um, very real in the middle of all the ins- insanity. I thought the I did not mind the CGI at all, which I thought I was going to hate. I thought it very clearly read as a cartoon and was supposed yes. to be sort of fakey and silly. Um, it was so great. Yeah. It was like perfect in that way. It was like CGI that acknowledges it's CGI. Yeah. It wasn't trying to be a realistic. It, great. it reminded me it. like in the best way. And I, I mean this in this is the only way that this would ever be a compliment. But it kind of reminded me of like Batman and Robin era uh, like superhero movies, just that yes. candy colored neon like garbage that still like for me because of I guess the age group that I'm in still signifies to me like fun silly movie like when <laughs> when the color fills are like neon orange or green or something like with the lighting and there's all these canted angles and everything I don't know anyway so I saw it and I, I mostly I mostly enjoyed it um, and then I saw Jason Bourne which is not good and came out it's been out for about a week now it'll be out a week when this podcast comes out um and for me, the reason I did not like it is exactly the reason that I think a lot of people, even outside, even people trying to make an argument outside of the, like, I don't want female Ghostbusters, people trying to make the argument of, like, this is a needless reboot. Jason Bourne is a needless reboot of a beloved franchise. Like that, and I and I am a, a very big fan of the Bourne movies, even though I could not tell you what happens in the second and third one, even though I saw them. But I enjoy them. I look. I, I usually see them on opening weekend. Like they are, they are appointment viewing for me. And I just found this one to be so reheated. There was it was basically the same plot that it's always been. Like except now there's a different reason he's trying to find out about his father. Like it's just 
and, and now there's like a new younger hotter like female uh foil for him i mean it's just it, it just felt like the most transparent effort to keep the keep the property hmm. like it's one of those um it was just disappointing because i always found those to be while they're totally you know action flick popcorn movies they also you know are a little more i find them to be a little more sophisticated than they have to be and so I just thought that that was interesting because in the end, I walked out of Ghostbusters feeling like for all its flaws or messiness or whatever, it had such a reason to exist, which is the, the exact opposite of what everybody's been saying. <laughs> and uh, and I, I mean, I felt like everything, you know, even down to having the villain be a guy living in a basement, like there is like a very strong reason for that to exist for it to feel cathartic for half the population and i and and born was such a silly example like it's like nobody's no but of course nobody's upset about born other than like it not being a very good movie but nobody's upset about it for political reasons you know i just i thought it was i don't know i i one of the things that i feel like has been weird to me about the sort of like political outrage about ghostbusters is that there have been so many great performances, and one of those great performances came from Chris Hemsworth, who is playing a Dixie <laughs> Blonde. Yes. Like, he was delightful. He was so yeah. much fun, and, like, such a revelation. And it was one of those moments where you're like, you know, guys, like, it could be a good thing to yeah. allow this sort of broader range because you you sometimes will get really surprising great stuff out of it and like i'm i'm the reason i'm saying this mm-hmm. is that channing tatum is going to be playing a mermaid oh yeah oh don't think i missed that this week and i'm here for it like i am so here for it i think that's i like how be you delightful. literally did a dolphin laugh <laughs> in response to that I mean, it was like one of those things. It was like a moment of uh, pure glee for me. And um, in part because, you know, one of the things about Ghostbusters is is guys being like, well, how would you like it if somebody took a classic female movie and recast it with all men or, you know, swap gender roles? How would you like that? And the answer is apparently I would like it fine. I would love it. <laughs> Sounds great. Let's let's uh, do Steel Magnolias next. <laughs> Oh my god, that would be incredible. Who would be in the who would be in the all male steel magnolias? Oh man, let's, let's... Matthew McConaughey oh, for would real. be in it. Um, um and the <laughs> other one that looks like him, Owen Wilson. <laughs> we'll be busy fantasy casting the all female remake or all male remake of Steel Magnolias. If you have any suggestions, please reach Let us, us on our Twitter accounts. Um Yeah, I mean I think I, it's funny. I, we said we weren't going to talk about politics on this podcast, but it did bring to mind like this statement that I thought was so powerful in Hillary Clinton's otherwise like fine speech. Again, things that are fine, but like otherwise like serve their purpose and are like good in the long run. But the thing that, when she was talking about like uh, I, I think just I think she was talking about uh, was she talking about equal pay? I think. But there is this statement that was just like I'm I'm. Or no, no, she's talking about just the glass ceiling of her being nominated at all. And she said she was happy, you know, obviously happy for her, her daughter, her daughter and her and her grandchildren that they would be able to see this as an example of what they can do. And then she said, I'm also happy for the boys and men of the world, because when one group is able to or one group can break through barriers, then it helps everybody. And I feel like that, like, like, I can't believe we're talking in these terms about freaking Ghostbusters. <laughs> but like that. 
is ultimately why I'm into it. It's not like I want to see a female remake of everything. I just think like the more opportunities are out there for everybody, the whole industry is better. And if that means we get Mermaid Channing Tatum next, then great. We're on a roll. Do you want to talk about flossing also? (laughs) (laughs) While we're talking about other um, institutions. Speaking of Channing Tatum, have you ever noticed his wonderful teeth? No, um... (laughs) So this is interesting. The AP did some really funny investigative reporting. So for things to be included in in government guidelines, they have to have scientific basis for their inclusion, right? Right. And it turns out that there is little to no evidence that flossing prevents cavities and gum disease. Or, you know, just no, nothing really good. Now, I want to be super clear. Mm-hmm. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It doesn't mean that <laughs> flossing is bad for you or that it's not going to do those things. What it means is that we don't have good long-term data that suggests it does do those things. Okay. Right. This could be rectified with a couple of studies. And, and of course, the whole world went wild because we've all been told <laughs> to floss by our dentists uh-huh. every time we visit since we were five. And if you're like me, you took up flossing relatively recently. And so like, <laughs> I, like, I, like last year, that was like one of my hobbies was like, all right, I'm taking up flossing now. I'm going to floss. Ugh, it's like sticking yourself with pins, though. It's like, cool, I'm going to put a pin in my hand like every day just to, I don't know, for self-improvement purposes. <laughs> and like, you know, there, there, are, there are, I can tell you, there are benefits to flossing, for instance, that your breath smells better. This is totally anecdotal, it, it, but it happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are these and like it's also really satisfying to remove, for instance, corn kernels from between your teeth. So like by all means, that's why we have toothpaste. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I, for one, am not sad to see flossing go. Maybe I can like still get some use out of the packet of the little like pick things that I have, because that's the only way that I find myself able to floss is with those little thingies. Mm -hmm. Um, But for people who are saying like, oh, you know, just I just want to get all of the like all that old food out of my mouth and stuff, which, of course, like when you think about it that way, yes, it sounds horrible. I would love to get like <laughs> nasty old food out of my mouth. But it's not like that's the only place it lives. Like your mouth is a sewer. There's so much junk in there. Like you I mean, I feel like Listerine in it is probably the safest bet. But even that like that. I, I, I'm, I'm more likely to Listerine than I am to, to floss every day. I mean, your tongue is full of junk. Yeah, like, you should also be brushing your tongue, FYI. If, yeah. If, you know, for those of you who may not know that, like, brush your tongue. Oh, I brush my tongue. That, I find that to be way more satisfying. Your tongue is like a shag carpet, like, filled with old crumbs and, food <laughs> and stuff. It's disgusting. No, I, I mean, you know, to me, like, uh, what, what dentists have been saying, which seems reasonable, is that, like, Flossing is a low-cost, low-risk intervention. It's probably good for you. Please continue flossing. And this seems totally reasonable, and I'm not going to stop flossing just because, you know, there's no good evidence for it. I'm going to wait for the evidence that it doesn't do anything to come in, and then I'll be like, screw it. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like there's a lot of stuff that we don't realize that there isn't necessarily evidence for, like your annual checkup, for instance. This right. is a really good example. There's um, no real benefit to getting an annual checkup if you are not sick. Oh, I thought you were going to say about your teeth because I was like, oh, that's great news for me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, like, just like your your annual doctor's exam. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, not necessarily something that that helps you. Uh, there's there's no good evidence that, that that leads to better wellness in the long term. And, like, most people still feel better about going for an annual checkup anyway, you know, just to, like, say hello and get the clean bill of health and, and feel better. And, like, I don't want to denigrate that 
impulse necessarily, but it's sort of coming from the same place, right? Like there are these things that we do that don't necessarily give us health benefits, but that do seem to make us feel a lot better. And that, yeah. that I don't know. I, I don't know how well, to balance those things. It's nice to be able to go into somebody with the authority to know whether or not you're dying and have them just tell you you're not dying. Like, that's that's nice once a year. Right. And like, I, I, I like compliments and like my doctor always tells me <laughs> that my blood sugar is really good. And like that makes me really happy. <laughs> just go. The lesson from this is go to the dentist and the doctor for pep talks. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So any, anyway, in conclusion, if you're if you're flossing, probably don't stop. And if you're not flossing, you know, talk it over with your dentist who probably will have some thoughts about this. But, <laughs> you know, don't uh, I don't stop. Don't stop flossing. Yeah. I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way. On the way. The way of slipping away. So, um, Emily, I've been watching the new BBC America documentary, The Hunt. Um, and for those of you who are listening in the UK, of course, this came out some, some time ago. And it's been an interesting experience. It looks intense. I was very excited about it at first, and then I realized it was all just about animals eating other animals. And I was like, I don't know if I have the stomach for this, but looks great. So let me let me um, allay your, your concerns on that particular level. Um, uh -huh. First of all, most hunters, the most successful hunters in the animal world, only succeed about half the time. So you see a lot of failed hunts. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is like something that I really appreciate that they like drove home because that's not like a thing that you necessarily realize, especially when you have things like, you know, great shark attacks or whatever, like, you know, as a, as, as series that occur here in the U S. So like having, having that really driven home to you again and again, that like a lot of the time the hunter just straight up goes hungry. Yeah. That's, that's pretty a one. But the other thing is it's sort of more about um, stalking prey than, than killing prey. Right. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's like some like fairly serious like fish on fish action where like they eat each other <laughs> in like fairly gruesome ways. Oh, but like God. that's not like viscerally upsetting in the way that like mammal kills can feel upsetting. And the reason that I'm saying this is that there's a section of the documentary where chimps hunt monkeys. Hmm. And I have seen footage of these hunts before and they are they end very gruesomely. I, I don't recommend looking this up, but, um, cause it's nightmare fuel. The chimps will tear the monkeys limb from limb Ugh. and then eat them. And that is not shown in the BBC cut. They cut away from basically that kind of violence. Yeah. Well, so, cause just because it's like, it's a monkey. I mean, yes, even watching a dog or, or like a big cat or something get damaged in some way is different than a monkey, which is like, related to us yeah it's it's well part of the reason it's nightmare fuel is you're seeing one thing that kind of looks like us being torn apart by something else that kind of looks like us yeah. and it's just yeah. viscerally upsetting and you know I, I wound up talking with one of the producers on the show um and i asked him about this the specific uh sequence we talked about it and he was like yeah we decided that that didn't you know that that wasn't necessarily something that needed to be shown and particularly because you know the stories we're telling are about like locating prey and stalking prey and trying to mm -hmm. you know just make the food happen more than just like here is you know like three hyenas going at it on a wildebeest yeah it's not so much senseless violence it's like utilitarian violence yeah and that kind of made sense um and then as i after i'd gotten off the phone with him i started looking through some of the old reviews and i noticed that there had been sort of a controversy in the uk because in a couple of cases they hadn't the 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 producers uh the film crews whoever was was shooting 
hadn't quite gotten close enough to hear to get the mics in for you know hearing snapping bones, for instance. And so they had used sound effects. They'd used, I think, celery. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that, again, it was one of those moments where I was kind of like, all right, well, you know, I, I think maybe that like the questions I have here are, are questions that I have about documentaries in general, because obviously when you're working with life, um, in order to cut it to something that's a narrative, you leave stuff out. Sometimes there's stuff you can't get. Uh, like there's one, the, the very opening sequence is a leopard stalking. Oh gosh, I I, I'm forgetting what kind of horned animal it is, but the leopard is stalking. It gets it, drags it into a gully, but then the animal escapes because the leopard has been startled by baboons. They didn't mm -hmm. get a shot of the baboons. I found that out when, when I did the interview. You just see the animal escaping. Yeah. And like it's the baboons aren't mentioned in the narration because there's no footage of them. And like that's, you know, like that's a choice that you make as an editor when you're like, well, here is the story that we can tell. You know, here is some unnecessary detail or something we don't have footage for. Yeah. You make the cut. I think, I mean... In so many ways, it's similar to our job, right? Like, we're there's no way that we're going to have an article or a report on every single phenomenon within our area of coverage. Oh God, absolutely not! Like, we just don't <laughs> like even if we even if we were to have a magical staff of fifty people on the entertainment right. beat and fifty on the science beat, we still wouldn't hit everything. There's just a yeah. lot. So, you know, knowing when you have certain resources to work with, i.e. certain like footage, sound to work with and knowing how to work it to your strength, I think is a huge part of it. I think also like it depends hugely, of course, like what kind of documentary you're talking about. A nature documentary is different from, you know, a music documentary or something. Oh, sure. Yeah. But, you know, it's actually kind of funny because like... <laughs> Uh, you may have seen I had an interview with Werner Herzog on the website I did. Uh, this past week. And, you know, he's he's somebody who's talked at length about, I guess, uh, not what I would call objectivity so much, but the actual utility of, of fact and like facsimile of reality to convey a truth. Like he calls it the ecstatic truth. That's something you can see lots of stuff about um, if you want to look further into it. But it's sort of his philosophy of of, of documentary. Like it might not be a thing where he, he does. He got criticized a lot, you know, especially in the 90s, I think, for doing a little more of like a, a poetic riff on subjects that a lot of people thought deserved to be taken more seriously or, or reported in a more journalistic fashion. And his argument has always been, you know, well, I wanted to convey the feeling of like what being in a burning, you know, uh, oil field is like rather than just doing a very cut and dry like news report on it. And I think, you know, it takes all types, you know, we need we need those sorts of more lyrical treatments of real world subjects. And we also, you know, need the facts in certain cases. And I think both work in concert and they are both part of like a full diet of information. That would be my argument. But I mean, I think I mean, that's not really an argument. But, but I mean, I certainly see how it depends. I mean, it depends. The, the editor really has to act, ask themselves what they're trying to get across with this scene of, you know, a hyena breaking apart an animal or something is like how how much is the sound important to the understanding of this act and this phenomenon like will the viewer get it will the viewer be moved or like fascinated or appreciative of what this animal does better if we juice up the sound a little bit yeah you know? or we cover for the fact that we couldn't get sound at all right yeah um you know and like it's one of those things again i the reason i sound like i'm waffling here is because i do love these documentaries and i haven't really enjoyed this one like i i would recommend it to anyone really because the animals are you don't need special effects when you've got these animals let's put it that right. way yeah <laughs> 
but at the same time, there's always, I feel like, a tension between sort of the two purposes of that, that style of documentary, which is both to educate and to entertain. And sometimes yeah. those two things can be at cross purposes. And I don't mean to suggest that I think that the BBC producers have done anything wrong. I think, in fact, they've been very thoughtful about the decisions they've made. Yeah. I just, I hope that this is not the only way that people are ingesting information about nature, I guess, yeah. is maybe the thing that I would say. Yeah, I mean... They're not getting any incorrect information, though, is, I think, the main thing. Yeah. Right? Like, then it's not like the sound is so incredibly exaggerated from reality that it, it, it misrepresents what happens. It's just artificially reconstructed. It's like doing a, it's doing like a, a recreation or a reenactment in like a crime documentary or right. something like or that. Like, you know, the, the voiceover of the famous actor reading somebody's letters. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, especially in something like this, that's being seen by a large population and especially a population of children, I should add. Yes. Yes, exactly. Cause I was going to say like, this is the sort of thing that gets kids interested in science and in nature at a young age this is the stuff that's like inspiring to them and so i think if there's a i don't know it's hard for me to really like tisk tisk something like that so (laughs) but i i mean when we were talking about this earlier i was asking if you'd seen wiener which is the documentary about anthony wiener's uh mayoral campaign that got completely railroaded by a second wave of sexting scandals because that I mean all obviously the subject matter is very very different but it did have me thinking about just the situation that the the, the contextual situation around a, a documentary and how that defines how something is presented because this documentary and and is has uh access that feels almost unparalleled for hmm. especially for a subject this this sensitive and I'm not and I don't think it's a case of okay they agree they got access because they agreed to cover him in a certain light because it is very very unflattering at times I do think that in that case they had a subject who just like loved attention like whether you come out of the film thinking that Anthony Weiner is a terrible gross guy or somebody who just got like just way into a situation that was way, uh, way too big for him to manage. You do come away with the impression that he has this sort of pathological need for attention. And I think that's part of like why he would allow a film camera to be there where he's when he's talking to his wife after she's just found out that he got that, that another one of these uh, women that he'd been talking to online had come out again. And like times when usually, especially a politician would send somebody out of the room, he allows them to stay. Wow. And it's not flattering. And it's in times extremely awkward and like anxiety inducing. And it I, it really it does make you think a little bit outside it like step outside or behind the camera and just see the situation that allowed this film to happen that relies a lot on personality and and subject yeah so um we spoke a little bit about reviews and biases and people getting upset about franchises either existing or not not existing. But yesterday, the internet was flooded with a a fresh batch of reviews for Suicide Squad, which will be opening today if you're listening to this when the podcast is released. Suicide Squad is the third-ish of this wave, yeah, third in, in, in this wave of DC Comics 
films. You know, DC is attempting to emulate and maybe surpass the seemingly unsurpassable Marvel's uh, cinematic universe machine. And they have done so, so far with Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, great title, guys, and now Suicide Squad. And Suicide Squad is about basically the supervillains in this universe, as led by the Joker and Harley Quinn. Um, It has been the subject of much um, attention and kind of people micro micro analyzing the trailers and set photos and all of that. And now we have the reviews and they are bad. (laughs) People are not into this movie. They're so bad. We were talking before the show. They're so bad that I actually now want to go see the movie. Yeah. And I mean, this is sort of what happened with Batman v Superman, too. And I didn't even end up seeing it. But I still might see I still might see this one. I don't know. But I mean, I think it's interesting because I don't think that this was there was such a foregone conclusion that this film would be bad. It comes from a director that I think a lot of critics do like, David Ayer. And it also seemed to have a sense of fun in the trailers, like maybe not your specific flavor of fun, but at least more fun than the last two films out of this cinematic universe. So I think I don't, I would not say in any case that anybody was rooting for this film to be bad. I think it also highlights a female supervillain, super character, whatever, in a way that we don't see that much in these films. So I think there was another reason to feel like, okay, hopefully this is interesting and not terrible. But um, they couldn't they couldn't hack it. Yeah, apparently um, it was terrible. Well, why why are you interested to see it now, Liz? Uh, Especially knowing now that it's not it's no bueno. Well, I've just sort of I've seen enough weird, bad press coming out around it that like I am now like locked in and kind of fascinated, right? Like, so there was like, there's like this, um, they were trying to talk about how, you know, Jared Leto was always staying in character and like was sending his castmates bullets oh, and God. things, except for like, and, like Viola, dead rats. Yeah. <laughs> except for Viola Davis, who like just was not having it, which like, Oh, good. you would not dare. You would not dare. Good for send. Viola. Like don't, yeah. don't, yeah. Don't put up with that. Don't subject her to such nonsense. No, you're, no, you don't deserve that. You know, and so, like, all of this stuff, like, was just very, very tone deaf. It felt really, especially, like, considering sort of, like, the national news, which we generally don't do on this show, but, like, the general sort of grim tone that that 2016 has taken and the amount of violence that we've seen, Mm -hmm. um, it, it seemed very out of step and very strange. And so, like, I was, I was like, oh, this is, this is, this seems like this might not, this might be a train wreck. I might be, I might be looking at a train wreck. (laughs) I think that a lot of, if there's any kind of huge red flag, it's just Jared Leto's Joker, right? (sighs) Like, not just the, what we know about what he did on set, but also just, I think, I think it's just a, not a good time for doing this sort of cartoon of insanity I saw a really great tweet that was retweeted by somebody else. I have no idea who did it, so I cannot give credit. But it was something like, like you know, completely mentally sane people like, oh, this is the inside of my twisted mind. I'm so twisted and dark. The demons in my head, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people who are, you know, actually suffering from a, a mental illness are like chill. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's something about this performative sort of insanity that feels so, yes, out of step and unnecessary right now, given how much actual insanity there is in the world that I don't know I yeah it's still though I mean I still wanted a good film for Harley Quinn like I don't know I'm not that invested in any of these characters across any of these companies but like 
I felt like that would be a fun character to see on the big screen. I probably will see it still. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that ratcheted it up one more level for me was reporting that came out recently, like I, I think maybe even today, from The Hollywood Reporter. And uh -huh. apparently there were like two different films that were being made. Um, yeah. And one of them was Warner Brothers and the other one was Iris. And like one of the things that I've seen, you know, in the reviews is like this is like two different films stapled together. Yeah. And that's yeah. because it is. I mean, a lot of the, the reviews have talked about like there is something inherently kind of interesting of, OK, let's what what does a supervillain squad look like as opposed to a superhero squad? Like we don't have to do all of the building of a hero narrative blocks that you usually see in these films, but it still goes through them anyway, because apparently, and that seems like more something that would be on Warner Brothers or DC's agenda of just like, well, these, they still have to go through a hero's journey. Like, well, so here's what's interesting, villains. because like, you know, you, you mentioned the trailer. So I'm just gonna quote this directly from the, the report. A key concern for Warner's executives was that Suicide Squad didn't deliver on the fun, edgy tone promised in the strong teaser trailer for the film. So while Ayer, pursued his original vision, Warner set about working on a different cut with an assist from Trailer Park, the company that made the teaser. And then multiple editors were brought in to like reshape the film and they tested the two versions against each other and then like what came out is basically a compromise. Yeah. Well they did go to into extensive reshoots in the spring and that was sort of the first warning that things were not going as planned. Because I mean after that first trailer came up I felt like people in general were psyched about it at least like the fan the core fan group was psyched about it yeah so i yeah maybe it didn't come from from warner brothers maybe maybe the the hero stuff came from air in which case i'm totally confused but i well i i couldn't tell you what necessarily came from whom but the idea of watching there's something fascinating to me about films where the the director gets into a fight with the studio and then like eventually like four different cuts come out like Blade Runner yeah. is one. Yeah. And like there's there's something about like a film like this, like a a superhero slash supervillain movie that takes place in a franchise that 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 it could have been so weirdly handled here. There's like a kind of fascination I have now because of all of the stuff surrounding the film where I may actually wind up seeing this one in the theaters yeah. because I am so curious about how all all of this wound up, you know, well, it's coming just so, together. It, I mean, it's just, it's the equivalent of waste, of like not having a good carbon footprint or something. Like the fact that you need to have this film on your slate for a certain year in order to make your, you know, bottom line as a studio, but you don't know what it is well enough, so you make two of them is crazy. Like, like when you think about how much even a established director that's like working somewhere between an indie and uh, mainstream space, but not certainly not in these huge genre movies or huge franchise films. Like when you think about how much they have to struggle to make a budget and like work with what the resources that they have and then you think about warner brothers essentially spending the budget of two like two big free, uh franchise films on this one film just because reshoots are expensive reshoots are hugely expensive and you know doubles the what you have to end up paying the cast and everything or not doubles but like it adds significantly to it and and like it just seems so wasteful it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna clog up the film calendar with all of these spin-offs and and franchise films and everything then at least know what you're doing before you start <laughs> like at least have a plan and a tone that you know you need to hit even if it's like thoroughly focus grouped I don't know. It's very, it's somewhat dismaying, but. 
But yeah. So anyway, I'm I like I am ready for like the Suicide Squad like post mortem. I'm ready to like hear the like TikTok of exactly how it went down. Yeah. Like all of it because at this point. It's oh my such god! A you disaster. said t- you just said TikTok. That reminds me of something in the film Wiener, which you should you should see. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, well, you can uh, listeners can read Tasha Robinson's review, which is up now, and then I think we'll be doing another post film, more in depth chat about it on Monday. So if you see it over the weekend and want to compare notes, um, that will be on TheVerge.com. Cool. So that does it for us this week. It's a little bit of a shorter podcast, but we'll be back next week. And if you have not already, please subscribe to Verge ESP on iTunes. We're at Verge ESP. We're also on Spotify on your mobile device. And we're on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Verge ESP. And you can reach us on Twitter as well. I am at Emily Yoshida on Twitter. And Liz is Miss Lopato, MS Lopato on Twitter. And that does it for us. All right, folks. Have a good one. Bye.